This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Food. Many of us have a complex love-hate relationship with it. Although our eating habits are designed to enrich, nourish, and sustain us, for certain segments of our population, their eating habits pose a genuine threat to their overall emotional, mental, and psychological well-being. Once a quietly sequestered battle, disordered eating has now stepped to the forefront of our common vernacular, veering toward an ever-deepening path of cultural misrepresentation that often presents devastating personal outcomes. In this episode, we're exploring the complex relationship between food, emotions, and society with Dr. Marcella Ramondo. Marcella is a psychologist who specializes in eating disorders while creating body and food liberation through social justice. Armed with her BA from UC Berkeley and master's degree in public health from the University of Michigan, Marcella's desire to address eating disorders drove her to pursue her doctorate in clinical psychology. Until 2005, she worked with About Face, a nonprofit organization that addresses media impact on body image, serving as the organization's director of media literacy. Today, she is on the board of founders and a consultant, serving on the advisory board for the Association of Size Health and Diversity. Today, we examine the impact of diet culture on food insecurity and our mental health, and the inherent power social influence has over our overall well-being. When we return to the light inside. We see diet culture everywhere. In all forms of media, the workplace, at the doctor's office, in retail, and even in our grocery stores. On almost a daily basis, we are bombarded by harmful messages created by the diet industry. Various diet programs are now a household name. Noom, Paleo, and Keto. Oh my! Diet culture has such a hold on society that it is now considered a $71 billion industry. And with all of this in mind, it's easy to see why obesity is such a hot-button cultural topic. The World Obesity Foundation defines weight stigma as the discriminatory acts and ideologies targeted toward individuals because of their weight and size. Like other forms of bias and discrimination, weight stigma, also called sizeism, affects people who suffer from weight bias as they're left with deep emotional turmoil. While those who bear the emotional burden of such harsh judgments are left with painful suffering and psychological distress. Like me, you may find yourself asking, so what makes all of this become a toxic pattern of behavior with ill effects to our health? The answer is simple. It's all a lie based on outdated health metrics and marketing manipulation. Today, we explore the effects of this harmful manipulation with clinical psychologist Dr. Marcella Romando. Marcella, I'd like to discuss with you today how many of us have a love-hate relationship with food. And although our eating habits are designed to nourish, enrich, and sustain us, for certain segments of our population, their eating habits pose a genuine threat to their overall emotional, mental, and psychological well-being. And our eating habits can frequently be viewed through the lens of our social and cultural models of interaction. Within the framework of a quick overview, hitting the key target objectives of our conversation today, what role do you feel a healthy outlook at our dietary habits plays when addressing our overall well-being? Let's start there if we might today. 
Ah, all right. You just went right for it. <laughs> I go right for, right the for kill. it. Like you like to hit do. the big juicy thing right out front. <laughs> First, our relationship with food is complex, and that's not a bad thing. So I, I just want to start that off. And because food is so many things, like food is family, food is community, food is celebration. And that's a wonderful thing. Food is also emotional. And we might have like, oh, that's not a good thing. And yes, you know, we, we certainly don't want our emotions to take over. But at times, food does comfort us. And that's not a bad thing. Where it starts to get tricky is that I feel like food is deep. Our relationship with food, there's family, it's emotional. And then we have our society and all, you know, it's diet culture. And you'll hear me use that word a lot in that diet culture is not invested in our well-being with food. I, you, you're not going to convince me otherwise like but but what about what about no diet culture is invested in keeping you with the most disharmonious relationship with food so that you engage in chasing some kind of goal you know namely weight loss and a lot of it through your relationship with with food um it is not invested in your well-being it is not invested in your health it is not invested in your happiness it is invested at keeping you in this mindset so that you will spend all kinds of money and pursue all kinds of things i'll just call them things because i in order to have this health and harmony and happiness where we get hooked on that is because of our emotional relationship with food like it's hard for us to think rationally like wow this i don't think this is working or or i don't think i'm supposed to be cutting out all this food or eating only this food and also we live in a society that I think it can get very judgmental on our relationship with food, what we do, what our bodies look like. So we not only are we judgmental, but decisions about who's in and what you get and what opportunities are afforded to you are based on your body and what society says is a healthy, acceptable, attractive body. So we're also pursuing that because we want to belong, not realizing, again, this isn't about belonging. This is about fitting in because nobody wants to be left behind. As human beings, social acceptance is considered a core basic need, therefore influencing whether or not we feel left behind. Because social rejection thwarts a core human need, it comes as no surprise that it influences a variety of our outcomes. Emotional, cognitive, behavioral, biological, and neural. In terms of emotional response, how does this interaction tend to increase our experience of negative emotions? So this is why this is all so disharmonious. I remember pre-pandemic, of course, I went to Italy and... I forget where I, I I was. It was this this. Um, there's a lot of town centers, and you walk in, and you're literally in a square, and there's people around. And it was like a 9 p.m. and it was warm. It was summer, and I was looking around. Everybody had ice cream. Everyone was just eating it. 
and I could hear chatter and people were, there was laughter. The, the people were just chatting and, and looking at each other and engaging and everybody was eating ice cream. And I just, I was like, ah, yes, these are those moments where we have this harmonious relationship with food. We're enjoying ice cream. Everyone was there with their cone or their cup, enjoying themselves, just being together. I didn't feel negative energy. I didn't hear weird talk about, ooh, I, I'm going to have to work out tomorrow or, ooh, blah, 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 you know, and because there was a lot of English being spoken, and that is the language that I speak and understand. But it just felt like we're just here and we're together and we're enjoying ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) I think here at the outset of our conversation, it's ultimately essential that we establish, we develop our habits from what, you know, I like to associate with those eight dimensions of wellness, that framework or model. In that model, it basically establishes that wellness is a holistic approach that's vital to improving our outcomes as human beings, you know, assessing our overall experience, our state of collective embodiment. From that regard, are we engaging that healthy model of emotionality? You know, are we looking at it as good and bad or do we release some of that subjectivity and look at it? Is this healthy, unhealthy? Is this adverse beneficial? That kind of steps maybe perhaps out of some of that initial framework of stigma that automatically starts to trigger some of those emotional reactions. Of course. Bit of a side, you know, and we start to see that looking for that happy environment of food Mm -hmm. in this case. So with that regard, you've often mentioned how eating is an emotional interaction and that can be both adverse and beneficial informing our perspectives. Yes, absolutely. What effects do our emotions play when forming our perspectives on eating habits, both adverse and beneficial from this perspective then? Absolutely. I think if we can remove so much of the judgmental lenses of, and really the really harsh criticism of like, when you engage in emotional eating, you're, you're undisciplined, you're lazy, you're, you're bad, um, you're disgusting. I mean, I have spoken with, with folks, this, this is my work, and, and, and the words and, and labeling that one uses, I'm like, whoa, whoa, let's, that's really harsh. You know, and like I and almost like I'm having trouble listening to you and I'm here to listen like, wow, do you realize how hard that is? And like, yeah, yeah. And so I would love to explore someone's emotional relationship with food. And I I do. And, And saying like there are some times when folks share like it was too much for me to deal with this situation. I was so heartbroken. I was so devastated. So I took it out on food. I said, yeah, it's okay. You know, it's okay. Now, when you're like, but wait, then it's important to see like, okay, we, we do this. However, is this your only coping skill? Then I'm like, okay, perhaps now we need to look at your relationship with food. If you are using food to avoid and to isolate, but could start to feel like even more like harming to cope with life, then like, okay, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at what's happening for you 
in your life that food is the only coping skill, the only coping thing you have, the only thing that on some level really feels to take the edge off. And when folks are in that place, they're like, yeah, I can't tolerate my life. I avoid. It numbs me out. I get to check out. Then I'm like, okay, what do we need to do to bring you back in a more present state? And what is it about your life that is intolerable? And what are aspects about your life that may or may not change due to our our society? Um, if folks tell me I deal with racism, then I'm like, yeah, that's, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. Um, however, and I'm not saying that it's important for you to just deal with it, but how do we hold what you are dealing with so that you don't hurt yourself and you don't take it out on yourself? Like you, even though society is telling you from a racist perspective, you're not worthy. I'd like for us to find a way to say, I do get to take care of myself. I do get to have a healthy relationship with food, a harmonious relationship with food. I get to experiment with food because that's also like as you were talking about holistically, like we need a holistic relationship with food and take out the good, bad. This is good. This is bad. But saying, okay, our bodies change. And we might be like, wow, I used to be able to eat X amount of food and now my body has a different response to it. I, I probably shouldn't eat as or I, I don't want to eat as much because it doesn't feel good. That's different than X is bad for me. I shouldn't eat it. I'm an undisciplined person if I eat it. I'm like, that's not curiosity and holistic. That's a lot of self-imposed judgment that society created. And now, now you have internalized that. As opposed to our body shift. I mean, I, I could tell you I used to drink milk as a kid and now I can't. And but I'm not saying, oh, milk is bad. I'm just saying I can't do it. So I'm not going to. Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee is considered one of the world's premier health institutions. In a core study concerning emotional eating, their researchers outlined the key causes, effects, and influential interactions of emotional eating, establishing that first and foremost, our childhoods ultimately shape our foundational eating habits. Again, from your perspective, how do you relate this factor to how our eating experiences begin to form? That is a great question and a great outcome. And Absolutely. Uh, the folks that I, I work with that have such a, from a full-blown eating disorder to a very disharmonious relationship with food, many of them talk about their childhood experiences, talk about childhood experiences with food and their caregivers and sharing aspects of, one, we grew up poor. There wasn't food in the house. So just that kind of food scarcity model. And so having to look at poverty and how that shaped their relationship with food. Folks also shared coming from a family where where um, caregivers were concerned about the body changing. And so kids being put on diets at an early age, which is the absolute worst thing you can do to a kid and uh, putting them on a diet. If you are concerned about eating habits, 
relationship with food, that is something to explore with a lot of curiosity. So that, that outcome, yeah, folks have shared, like I was put on a diet. I had all kinds of food taken away from me. I grew up poor. I grew up, there was, there was trauma in the house that somehow intersected with how food was served. So I had this association with dinner time because that's when things got bad. And so I just, that study is most likely um, if we were to do like deeper dives and, and if they were to do, uh, I'm sure there's like some qualitative aspects, like really looking at, there was some trauma in those relationships from this like physical, emotional trauma to putting kids on diets to, to poverty. In regard to that, we can look at some of those patterns we do pick up. Anything from reward behaviors, I'm going to take you out for ice cream to reward you for this job well done. Or, you know, speaking from that level of trauma, as you mentioned, let's go out and eat some ice cream (laughs) to make us feel better about this. I'm going to go and buy you some candy to feel better about that. You know, we can start to see where some of those patterns inadvertently start to interject themselves. From that perspective, what are some of the direct connections between foods and feeling that we start to create. Yeah. You, and you bring up the, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to help you feel better. Um, folks also start to share in adulthood, like they need to earn their food. And diet culture is all about, you know, like you work out, now you can eat. Or you don't work out, you really uh, shouldn't be eating. And so that mindset is there. And I, I think when you share like, oh, let's reward you with, with ice cream, what I'm hearing is like there was an innocence with that and what, what felt like something actually kind of benign about like, oh, good job. Or yes, not recognizing that that starts to develop of a, oh, I I must now earn my ice cream. And especially with kids at such a young age, like we don't know nuance as kids. We, we our, our brains aren't developed there. It is a very like binary, good, bad, yes, no. So we, we, we don't really associate like, oh, I'm just kind of holding the nuance of ice. No, kids don't do that. Uh, so that that can start to develop. And then we have our diet culture that just reinforces that. So then that kind of benign, oh, you did a good job. You know, let's, you get a bowl of ice cream tonight. Um, our, our diet culture will run with that and say, you don't get ice cream until you do this workout or this thing. And it's not even just working out. Like uh, some of the folks that I work with, like talk about like, I didn't do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I didn't think I I really deserved to eat. Mm. It's interesting to see how some of those patterns of behavior start to simply surface and proliferate. Returning back to that Vanderbilt study, I found it interesting, you know, how that suggests that we crave certain foods based on that perceived level of stress or what we might be feeling and how that frequently influences our food choices in this regard, then, you know, we develop unhealthy eating habits that affect our behavior within a dual process perspective, relating Mm. that, you know, including intentional choice and reactive emotional motivation. We're making the choice between the two. Is this intentionally serving me or am I placating and reacting on that emotion? Mm Mm-hmm. 
to that regard, you know, instead of making that conscious aware choice of what's healthy and beneficial, we instead return to that more automatic involuntary action driven by that emotion. Yeah, I found that really fascinating how we can kind of tend to neglect that in our awareness. I'll say neglect that. It might not be the best framing choice, but that does slip without our conscious interaction. Mm -hmm. How do you feel this typically lays out for most of us in creating that pattern? I'm kind of searching here on that one. (laughs) I may have divested. I feel we might have already answered that a little bit. Is there anything we need to expand on with that? I do because I work with folks with eating disorders and, and, and mostly folks like full-blown medical eating disorders, yet I'm surrounded by what I feel like is diet talk. Um, and so like what you were describing of like, like responding emotionally to food, not recognizing that it's an emotional response to food, avoiding some aspect in your life. And also what, what, what I, I, I see is a vicious cycle of like noticing that, that you ate certain foods like um, emotionally um, without just recognizing like this is just this situation. Like when we are in an emotional place, I'd love to see studies and there are studies that probably that point out to like our, our bodies crave something pretty probably dense um, or our bodies crave something that, that is, that is comforting. So like folks don't eat like raw vegetables, um, but, you know, just having more of the comfort food and, and folks have shared, like there are certain like sugary, salty, processed textures that they need for, for soothing and, and, and noting that. But we already have a very negative label for that. And so and so and instead of just noting that situation for what it is and the next mindset is like well then i have to make up for that i have to eat less at the next meal i have to eat a salad and then that can start like you could put your body on like the deprivation because you may or may not have craved a salad but now you've deprived your body so then you're like i have to be good so then you set yourself up for another another, I will just call it like a, um, a, a binge eating or what feels like a compensatory response. And so folks have shared like, oh, I don't trust myself around cookies because I'll eat the entire bag. And it's like that already is a deprivation diety culture. And also like you're not trusting yourself. You've lost that inherent trust in yourself. So that's where it starts like that, that emotional response, which is, I think, normal or we've had that and and how to really look at that like yeah this is a situation you can see the cycle of deprivation compensatory deprivation compensatory and then i don't trust myself i just don't trust myself go god do not put those basket of french fries in front of me no you know take it away how many have been in situations where people like take it away from that regard when we travel back through our evolution as human beings or our journey however we want to look at that and dissect it makes good sense that we do have some emotional connection a healthy fear of starvation is a very powerful influential healthy motivating factor when that's within the right context when we examine it within that framework of emotional granularity if we don't fear not eating in that regard we starve and die all right 
finding that balance, that midpoint, that middle ground where we are effectively utilizing that. Traveling back to our childhood, many of us don't learn within our environments and our upbringing that framework of emotional granularity or simply being able to name and identify our emotions and effectively relate. When we're kind of cornered, for a lack of better way of framing it, to kind of pin down what exactly are we feeling can be a challenge, especially when we're molded and modeled to believe that certain feelings might be acceptable, whether even feeling and expressing is acceptable Mm -hmm. in our environment, in our patterning. We start to get some of that programming, even within that interaction that says thinking and feeling these things might inherently carry its own adverse implication. Mm -hmm. Again, research from the previously mentioned studies indicates that what we reach for when eating to satisfy an emotion depends on the specific emotions experienced at that time. People who experience sadness, for example, you know, reaching for ice cream and cookies 39% of the time and 36% of bored people opening up a bag of potato chips, for instance. As you mentioned, under stress, the body craves carbohydrates, which have chemical properties that soothe and relax us. You know, makes sense when we consider those factors. Holidays can be especially emotionally activating Therefore, we might reach for extra helpings of turkey. Tryptophan has a soothing effect, releasing both melatonin and serotonin. Serotonin, what does it do? It regulates our mood. Melatonin activates our sleep receptors, for instance. So it makes sense. We might try to sleep through some of our more conflicting family interactions on the holidays. Looking back again, you know, they equated how salty might equal boredom, crunchy, might be our go-to when we experience anger or frustration, spicy, equaling excitement and intensity. You know, we look for that lift in our emotion. Sweetness, you know, plain and simple. We're looking to create joy and contentment. We're basically looking to fulfill those emotional needs that are going unmet. From that regard, I find it curious how we can consider some of those implications. While we look at that, might we be engaging certain kind of avoidant behaviors like boredom? You know, I'm, I'm searching for that sense of kind of spark in the saltiness or anger and frustration. You know, we're kind of fighting unconsciously with that emotion. Very often modeled to say anger and frustration is an adverse emotion most of the time. I'm going to say adverse Mm -hmm. rather than positive or negative because that even becomes loaded. Absolutely, yeah. Most of the time we're conditioned to avoid those emotions at any cost. Mm -hmm. So we're seeking that kind of fighting aspect of crunching through something. You know, we're crunching through the emotion. Actively, you know, there's a lot of motion and energy involved in chewing. That's a, a bit of a stretch maybe today, but there's a direct correlation. There's a direct unconscious action of trying to avoid in some of that mannerism. I see, you know, we look at that sense of finding, again, that excitement and intensity, mm-hmm. you know, when we're feeling kind of in some of those maybe lower vibration emotions of sadness or grief. When we get in some of those more depressive states, finding something that connects us with the feeling of aliveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd find that interesting to look at those circling back. <laughs> that that might have been a bit of an aside today. Let me oh, have a moment. No. 
I don't. I I think you bring up a point of that, like human bodies want to express and want to live fully. And when we can't, because of the society that we live in, it's going to find outlets. And so not surprising that there are behaviors around food. Um, I mean, so that makes sense. Um, I'm just going to like, you know, sit with that as you were talking about like various aspects and various emotions and, and how like a human body would like, I want salt or I need something crunchy or I just need something really smooth. Um, because of like someone saying, I can't live fully. I can't express. I'm having trouble getting my needs met. I'm having trouble just articulating it. I'm having trouble someone having it validated, even if I can't get my needs met. It's like we live in a society that's, I I feel because of diet culture and other oppressive aspects, there's this constant oppressive gaslighting that just happens. And so we get confused and all. And so what do we do in our bodies? Like I need to express and be complete. And so I I can see that symbolic relationship with food. Um, absolutely. And, and you see other self-harm behaviors coming through too. I mean, we, we can talk about various forms of addiction and self-harm and, and all. Um, yeah. Let's take this back a step here maybe and look at how two types of hunger themselves are believed to exist. That physical hunger, which fulfills our nutritional needs and that emotional hunger that which fulfills our psychological needs. What are some of the core differences that, you know, a concept you relate to? Let's start there. Mm. Uh, so now we're just bringing it down to bare bones. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, physical hunger and when we respond to that, it's all those things that we hear about, like your body just knows what to do and what to take care of to take care of itself. So there is no like emotional kind of element coming in of like your body saying, I'm hungry. I need fuel. I need certain kinds of fuel. When I have enough, I will let you know, and then you will be satisfied. And our physical hunger doesn't know about like what's available to us and, and, and all, um, does it know, like, you know, we, we can't talk about food and emotional hunger and and not talk about food justice in terms of what kinds of foods are available to us. Um, like we, we, I'm sure you've heard of like food deserts and where there is produce, where there are fast foods. And so that's a whole other discussion. So, but like with physical hunger, it's, I want these things. I need these things for my body. And I will also add, you know, and you might say, well, isn't this the emotional hunger? I'm like, no, like physically, you know, we want nourishment. We want fuel. We want pleasure. And so it is saying like, you know, that like, yeah, I want something something sweet. I want something X, you know, like, I, I think that is part of physical hunger. Some people might disagree, but it's like, no, our, our bodies want all of this. Um, and when that happens, our bodies are satisfied. 
Now, the emotional hunger, this is when trying to find something and and search for something through food. And um, I mean, folks have shared like not really like like the the initial kind of yeah things feel great when i initially take out my emotional hunger on food but they've said like but it, it never works in the long run in fact it, it doesn't even make me happy like a couple hours later like like it's it can be a bit of a a bit of a rush a bit of like an immediate need um or some kind of numbing and and checking out but when folks have talked about emotional hunger, it often feels like this kind of deprivation in, in, in their lives or at times having a lot of trouble articulating it. Um, and emotional hunger can mean so many different things from I have trouble expressing my needs. I didn't grow up in an environment where I was encouraged to express my emotions and have a caregiver, like be a witness to that saying, it's okay. Oh, tell me about what's happening for you right now. Um, folks can have an emotional hunger can come from various forms of, of trauma, um, various forms of feeling in, invalidated and just not sure what to do with their emotions. And so sometimes folks can have an emotional range where they just feel like, I don't know how to regulate my emotions and I'm not being sued by them. Or folks come in with a very constricted emotional range and be like, it is terrifying for me to have them name them, feel them. But it does, as you can see, kind of leave folks in a place of like emotional deprivation, emotional hunger. And if folks take that out on, on food, you, you can also see like folks aren't being satisfied by that. It, it is a form of coping it can leave folks with, um, with a really disharmonious relationship with, with food. We look at that kind of natural hunger that arises from our physical need and slowly works its way up when we're starting to begin being a little neglectful of it, a little unaware of it versus to me, reigning true with that sudden urge of what we've kind of framed with being hangry now or that kind of angry outburst of needing to eat. Underlying that is a core emotional response driving that sudden fluctuation of mood and attitude. It's meeting some emotional need in that eating, in that regard. You know, a little bit of a stretch in that interaction, but we can see how that suddenly arises in that pattern of behavior. Yes. So framing that and hopefully I'd like to look at that idea of removing some of the stigma of adversely labeling ourselves and identifying mm -hmm. as emotional eaters. What implications might arise from that? Instead, can we reframe that to allow ourselves to more vulnerably move through some of that guilt and shame? Frequently mm -hmm. becomes associated with the act or habit pattern of emotional eating. So you'd like to remove like the word emotional yeah, or you know, emotional eaters. We so often label that emotional eaters. We are automatically identifying with eating in our emotions. Mm. With that often comes that unintentional suggested pattern of guilt and shame. Uh, yes. Some of that conditioning starts to form some of that limiting self-belief 
then also begins to be tied with that. I am an emotional eater. We're starting to validate and justify it. Right. How do we start to bridge some of that in that gap? Mm, That's a great question. And I think folks can respond in in all kinds of ways. Like I, I, I could see folks saying, I don't want to take that label away, or it's almost like taking back the word queer. Like I'm taking that word, you know, we've had a community take that word back. Yet, I don't think it's quite the same thing um, in that I'm seeing where you are coming from because it could be one, I'm an emotional eater and that's just what I, what I do um, versus it's hard for me to be vulnerable. It's, it's hard for me to admit I have needs. I think those parts is, is something we, we need more of. Um, it's I like, it's, yeah, I, um, I have trouble, you know, getting my needs met. I have trouble sharing my vulnerability. I don't feel safe to do so in this society. So food is comforting to me in that way. Food helps me in that way. Food is consistent in that way. Folks have shared like, there are ways food doesn't let me down because I know I can rely on it. So I would like to add more, you know, um, like nuance and fluidity and curiosity with emotional eating so that it's because the way you you said it is like yeah i'm an emotional eater and that's it you know mm. i am just there and that is where i live as opposed to sure we have times when we emotionally eat but what what is happening more for you what is the underlying aspect and how are you feeling about your life how are you feeling about yourself do you feel that you can live fully in who you are and is that at all connected to your emotional eating when it comes to mobile service providers with their high rate plans extra fees and hidden cost or expenses many of the big name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile and I can't believe the monthly savings, allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers 3, 6, and 12-month plans. The more months you buy, the more you save. Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at thelightinside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes 
with the Mint Mobile app. Many negative ideologies are frequently associated with obesity. These can include laziness, lack of willpower, a lack of moral character, bad hygiene, low level of intelligence, and unattractiveness. Stigmatizing beliefs and ideologies can lead to stigmatizing acts, with these acts manifesting themselves in various ways. People with obesity may experience negative verbal commentaries, teasing, or physical assault. Additionally, subtle behavioral slights, such as eye-rolling and tuttering, frequently occur. And social environment also plays a part, for example, seating in cinemas or airlines that is not designated to accompany people with obesity. This is commonly reported in medical settings in particular, where seating, gowns, and examining tables are unable to accommodate people with obesity. So many glaring discrepancies existing, and the gap growing increasingly larger. You stated previously how the impact of what our perception of our bodies endures on both the societal and social political level directly impacts our relationship with both our bodies and food. Let's look at how social stigma and conditioned beliefs play a role in influencing the level of social acceptance we experience. From that regard, how do you feel our self-concepts are influenced by both peer and familial interactions or relationships or our relationships within our family units? In terms of, I think they have big influences, our, our family relationships, our, our peer relationships, our societal relationships. In terms of, of bodies, yes, um, absolutely. I mean, like talking about now our, our bodies is also a whole new conversation too and also another really big area of can be distressed as 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 well um like i'm sure i i don't need to say like yeah our society favors thin folks our society favors light-skinned folks our society favors able-bodied folks um etc like we we have a we have a very uh, we have a beauty ideal, you know, young folks, we all know what the beauty ideal is, um, where we, we need to connect more of the dots is that if you're not in this quote unquote beauty ideal, it's not even about vanity anymore. It, it, it's more about like, well, how does society treat marginalized folks? And so folks have, have shared like their relationship to their body and how society regards them, like talking about how queer they look, the color of their skin, their able-bodiedness. Um, and so it's, it's not about beauty and vanity, but it's more about like being targeted, how does it feel safe to to navigate in their bodies um, in our society? Is it safe? Do they feel accepted? Do they even feel like they have opportunities presented given their their bodies and whom they are? A lot of body image work often focuses on rejecting thinness and loving and accepting your body and and how do we push back against thinness, but you can see like it's far more than just thinness. Like how do we embrace bodies and people who are different than us and different than this mainstream beauty ideal that's much more than just beauty. 
Yeah, I think that so brilliantly speaks to how some of these key generational condition beliefs we experience arise as a result of that in-group, out-group dynamic relationship. You know, whether or not we're acknowledged and accepted and welcomed within the communities we interact with. You've pointed out how intersectionality should be considered when exercising a more diverse view of how individuals belong to multiple marginalized identities. I want to point that out specifically, multiple marginalized identities and how we experience those inherent eating patterns within those communities. What role does cultural diversity play in empowering us to develop a cultural humility as an anchor while we learn about intersectionality and how does that impact eating disorders and developing healthy body image? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it plays a big role, huge, huge role um, in terms of if we're talking in and out just for simplistic sakes, because that in and of itself is so nuanced, but we'll, we'll just keep it, kind of simple as we talk about something so uh so inherently big um and cultural humility is so essential in how we work towards everybody having a harmonious relationship with food and their bodies and so if we start with that vision or like okay we all agree on that right you know at the top, like this is the absolute vision. Then underneath it, it's like, okay, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of aspects that we need to take a look at. And what we need to start doing first and foremost is listening to folks who are marginalized and what their relationship is and hearing from them of what do you need What is it like to navigate in your body? Are you able to access food or not? Are you even able to access health? What what are your experiences? Because we need to make, this is where we, we need to make changes. And for many of us with privilege, like how do we give space for folks who are more marginalized to share their experiences and folks who are privileged, are there ways we've just been quiet and kind of going along and how do we not do that anymore? I think what could start to feel overwhelming as we talk about food and our relationship with our our bodies is feeling like, wow, there's a lot of dismantling we need to do because I think we don't want to hear from our most marginalized folks saying, well, this society just doesn't work for me. And it means like, oh, we have to do some pretty significant overhauls in our society. And are we, you know, um, are we willing to do this? Do we want to do this? Because I, and, and if we don't, then it's like, what are we doing then? Because like, I'll just look at current eating disorder treatment. Prognosis is pretty dismal. You know, like it's kind of like, oh, people just don't really recover. And I was like, I just don't think that's true. Or I, okay, that that is true. Okay, I'm not going to argue with the uh, data. But when we sit back and look at it, I'm like, why are we saying that's true when we're born and like we, we all want a harmonious relationship with food and our bodies. And we kind of entered planet Earth with that. So it means like that's there. So saying like people don't recover, I'm like, 
oh, then we're doing something pretty wrong and we need to be willing to admit that. So like what you bring up, like cultural humility is a big, big part. How do you tell someone who thinks they're doing a great job and has power and privilege, like you're kind of missing the mark. Do we want to hear that? (laughs) For me, as we kind of consider some of those cultural disparities, my mind instantly travels to marginalized communities that exist with what we typically have come to known as a food desert climate, you know, where healthy, viable food sources aren't readily available. You know, therefore, some of those habits aren't readily in place simply based on availability. Yeah. And there's so much. Um, There's a project called the Food Empowerment Project, and, and it looks at that as well as so many other factors. Um, from labor union practices to food production to even animal, you know, our our meat industry and what's really behind that. And, and um, so like with food deserts, yeah, it does bring up the who has access to food? How is food grown? Who is doing all the harvesting? Um, how are we treating the earth? How is food being transported? Um, who gets it? Um, I, I like with the pandemic right now, we're on or where, I mean, whatever, like, are we on or the end? Who knows? Who knows? But it, it seems like uh, a lot of food transportation has been a bit derailed or what is happening because right now food prices are, are prices many of us haven't seen. And so it, it is really frightening to hear like, wow, people can't afford to eat. Whoa, you know, um, I've gotten a grocery bill that I, I haven't seen before. I'm like, oh my God. And there are some things I, I used to get. I'm like, one, I can't afford it. But two, I just can't pay that for that. You know, um, I, I've never seen that, 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 that amount. So like food deserts right now due to COVID, I think are just bringing accessibility, affordability and poverty up in, in a way of like, whoa, I'm, I'm sure we, we have seen in, in other times, um, and this might speak to my, my, my age and, and, and all, but it's just like, wow, food deserts, big topic, big topic. Within that, we can see where those very real implications of emotional trauma arise. That very real interaction of Scarcity, lack, and meeting viable demand for healthy food can in and of itself set us up for an emotionally reactive response. How do we start to bring that into awareness then becomes perhaps one of our greatest challenges. I'm going to leave that out there. Do we address Mm -hmm. that now? (laughs) Or is that something we just leave out there as an awareness in our conversation? Uh, I think it's all part of it because when we can't access food, that that is another emotional relationship to food. Absolutely. Um, and, and folks have, have shared like growing up in poverty, growing up not being able to eat, growing up sharing like we didn't throw food out. Um, so how that 
as we were talking about a little bit ago around physical hunger, it's hard to have like a, um, a kind of, I, I don't want to, a, a kind of full physical hunger if other factors are seeping in. Um, like how, how do you really go on physical hunger if you're in a household and you don't throw food out or you're in a household where you're having to make decisions on affordability, but we can have this this week, but we can't have that, you know? So it, it can shape physical hunger or physical hunger can be influenced by that or, or the emotional hunger part can start to take over more. Culturally, weight bias has been brought to the forefront as a prevailing social justice issue. Looking at those marginalized communities from a (laughs) compassionate and empathetic framework, share with us what encompasses weight bias from that regard. Mm. Uh, Well, first, I'm going to say, you know, as a person who's been thin my entire life, I don't understand. You know, I, I, I can never tell you I understand. I get it. I, I haven't had that lived experience. So, you know, so with that being said, weight bias is such a societal issue because there are a good number of folks that feel like having weight bias is important. It's a good thing because if it results in people like actually doing something and losing weight, then we need to keep weight bias in. So I realize I'm not starting off in a compassionate way, but starting off more in like how harmful it is. Um, I'd like to go back to the compassionate way and, and saying like, okay, so weight bias is really not getting to looking at a person fully and what they are doing and what they are and what they are needing. Uh, Weight bias is looking at a person in a large body and having all kinds of thoughts and conclusions about them as opposed to if you are a medical provider checking in and doing a routine checkup, inquiring about eating, um, not assuming weight bias, it, it, it delays care, it, it, it delays health care, and can erroneously result in mortality. And, and thinking like, well, the mortality was due to the large weights. Like, well, no, the, the mortality was due to weight bias. You, the, the proper care was delayed as, as opposed to, oh, it's just person in a large body that's so unhealthy that that's what they died of. It's like, no, that, that isn't what they died of. And I, and I know several cases, or I'm going to say several people to bring in more of the compassion. That was their experience. Weight bias just gets in the way of people suffering and not getting the, uh, care they need. I mean, we can look at folks in large bodies as well as folks in very thin bodies. Like one of the uh, singers, Amy Winehouse, I mean, there's this talk like she died of an overdose and her brother said, no, she died of an eating disorder. Her eating disorder is what killed her. And I'm like, well, nobody was saying anything when her body changed and she became really thin. I'm like, I think she was probably given a lot of praise, but like, whoa, I mean, I was looking at pictures of, of her and I was like, her body changed so dramatically. 
like wait bias got in the way of like, ooh, maybe we need to intervene and not praise. So weight bias is when we let our viewpoints of weight really dictate, impede, block what, what someone really, really needs. Weight bias also, I will say, assumes that people in large bodies are not happy. And so assumes that people in large bodies aren't living joyous, free lives that have movement and sex and pleasure and a good relationship with food. Um, we just assume well, people in large bodies are just really unhappy and like, well, maybe, but they might be unhappy because of all the weight bias they're encountering as, uh, as opposed to no folks are happy. So it, it gets in the way of connecting and helping people get their needs met um, because we just have weight as this factor. So we stop being curious. We stop asking questions. For me, it's interesting to reel that back a bit and see how our social evolution has occurred as a society. You know, we look back and what are ideals of healthy body types might have been in any given frame of reference, any point in time. You know, we look at the Victorian age and that more curvy, voluptuous figure was seen as the healthy ideal. Moving a little more progression into 70s, 80s, we started to develop that model of the waifishly thin, mm -hmm. healthy model. And now we're kind of going through this fitness revolution, perhaps to frame it, where that more musculatured, somewhat curvy again is coming back in vogue coming back in prominence and we see this shifting perhaps confusing state at times where what exactly constitutes the healthy ideal you know that median range where we are engaged in that holistic level of health mm -hmm. i feel that creates some of that disparity in many regards yes i can um like and I think it's just important to look at, like, politically, what was happening. Like, like, what, like, 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 why do we need an ideal body type? Like, what is that about? And, and I, I do believe there are politics behind it. Um, and even some of the research pointing out that when, like, I think it was like, uh, like in some of the early 1900s or, or 1920s, that when, when women were actually becoming very thin, there were a lot of medical doctors that were like, this isn't good. This is actually not good. Like, why are women like not eating? You know, just like, like, what is this? Um, and, and to look back thinking like, wow, medical doctors were not happy about this saying this is actually unhealthy because we certainly don't see that now. So it, it is trying to understand also too, like, why did we have an, an, an ideal body? Like was curvy, were we really celebrating a body or were we having an agenda? Like was curvy around fertility? You know, just like what I, I, I do think having this ideal body shape is more around control and containment, uh, particularly when there are body types that we that are not very attainable. Yeah, I think. Relating to that, when we look at some of our reflected family beliefs, you need to put some meat on those bones. We've heard that in a context socially, or mm -hmm. you look sickly. You know, sometimes it's that drastically. You look sickly because you're not carrying enough weight, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. 
it's interesting to look at those patterns and how that starts to form that trauma bond. Right. Looking back to some of our previous episodes, you know, we talked about body mass index and how that has been culturally grown to signify, you know, how it serves as a key indicator for assessing our personal health. For decades, we've kind of adapted and adopted that. Right. Suggests that many of the ideals and models are somewhat understated in many regards when guiding health effectively. In light of the erroneous nature of that approach, how do we start to reframe that to accurately reflect scientific body type assessments to empower more holistic health? Mm. Well, you know, body mass index is um, for like this. Oh, we just simplistically want to say if you're healthy or not. And I'm like, no, doesn't just doesn't work that way. Um, if we want to assess someone's health medically, scientifically, then like, then look at the numbers. Do do a comprehensive uh, evaluation. I mean, people want to know if they're healthy or not. People want to know like, how is my cholesterol? Do blood work on me. Do a full body. Um, so, I, I think first of all, we need that. Like, um, and I'm just going on, 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 on medically, you know, medically, physically, because um, we know health means far more than that. But let's just stick with that because we're talking about BMI. And so, um, and BMI is just no indicator of health whatsoever. It's, it's funny that folks talk about the science or we need evidence-based, like, but BMI is really, it's not really good scientifically sound. So why is this like this? premium indicator of health when it was some math project in the early 1900s, not even designed for health. And so, but yet we took it as the most important indicator of health and the lines of, you know, of like healthy, underweight, overweight, obese, um, they're very arbitrary um, and how they're how they're um, designed or, or where the cutoff is. Again, arbitrary, not really based on science, but yet it is, or it's indicated. Um, and, and BMI says nothing too about, about a person's health, but yet you see these studies that say, well, folks in larger BMIs have blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, let's look at this study that, that you did. Um, and if you look at the study, I'm like, this is not a very good study, a good statistical study, good uh, structural um, research study. So why are we also drawing these, you know, formative conclusions like BMI produces this when the study was pretty shoddy to begin with? So um, I just think that we, we do need to take a better look at uh, what is health, uh, really look at BMI and see like, no, this, this isn't actually a very good tool and it's not very scientifically sound because while there are studies that say a higher BMI produces these, you know, bad outcomes, there are studies that say higher BMIs actually don't produce bad outcomes. So, but those studies aren't being highlighted. So, yeah, I have more to say about BMI, but, <laughs> and those, and those studies, um, but yeah, they're, they're not an indicator of health at all. And people want to be healthy. And 
I've had conversations, folks saying like, I'm unhealthy because my BMI is high. And I'm like, but I want to know what else is going on with you. Like, what are your other numbers? I would want focus on, on any movement, let's say, is for you to get more connected to your body, not have like, I have to move in order to lose weight. It's like, I want you to move because you want to be flexible. You want to be stronger. You want to have more lung capacity. You want to feel good. Yeah. So it, it's like losing sight of health because we focus on this arbitrary, erroneous thing called BMI. When we look at most of those labels of BMI, they don't tend to carry a very encouraging body positive connotation with them. So looking at that, lastly, as we develop this more empowering outlook in relationship with both our body and food, mm -hmm. how do we begin to liberate ourselves from some of the more disempowering habits that often inhibit our health and well-being? Mm. I think for those who have medical insurance, you know, working with a doctor or a doctor medical person who is going to be supportive. Um, I work with folks saying like if and, and if they're able to do it because of the hospital setting that I work in, it's like if your doctor is just constantly on you about losing weight. You might want to see a different doctor and see about how is this doctor going to talk to you about health? Because we want folks that are going to encourage us of like, okay, what is your relationship with food? How is it? And, and, and encourage of like when folks, because folks do share like, I want to lose weight. And I'm like, okay, okay, I, I, I hear you. And like, why? And, and, and they share. And I say like, well, what if you don't? lose weight and like, huh, huh. And, and then when folks are able to, some of it is like, no, I'm not letting go of that goal. But some of it is folks are like, I want to have a good relationship with food. Um, or folks share like, I want to be able to touch my toes. I'm like, okay, see those, those are, first of all, I just feel softer. And then I, I, I hear like your, your knees are on like, I want health in my life and I want to be as big as I can be. I'm like, okay, now we're having a different conversation. And can you have a doctor and folks that are encouraging? Like if you're looking like, well, I just need to get to the gym every day. I'm like, but what about taking walks outside and taking walks and catching up with a friend? And so it's, it's, I think when we start to move away from weight, then I think we can talk about health in, in a way where it can be encouraging. Like folks can share, like, I want to cook more, but I don't have time. Uh, then I'm like, okay, then what can we do? Like, maybe it's a matter of starting off with more simpler things to cook. I mean, I think we just can have such a different and rich conversation when we talk about like, what's really important to you. And I think that also ties into like, what are your values and, and, how, and how does health intertwine with that? And folks can share like values are often around like, I want people in my life, I want to be close to my friends and my family through health. I'm like, that's a great value. And a, and a great goal. And how can we encourage and support that? Shifting our perspective to a healthier frame of reference, both socially and emotionally, how can we identify effective treatment options for individuals who are in direct need of this assistance? Mm. 
I think we need more community-based programs that are just very holistic. I think we need community-based programs that don't have uh, weight loss attached to it. I, I, I think we need more access to, to medical care um, that don't have weight loss goals attached to it. And so I think those are two important things to start in terms of how do we encourage this. Um, I don't know so much about gyms because I, I don't belong to, you know, some of the like mainstream gyms where you're like, we're walking in, there's this ginormous arena. But for those places that exist, how do we create an environment where it is, um, it, it is something that folks can come to and feel like, I want to move and I want to have goals and I want to be supported in my goals as opposed to as opposed to weight loss. I think in very many instances, that can be a very challenging and emotionally engaging environment. I can relate that back for a number of years. My daughter worked at Planet Fitness, visiting Planet Fitness. One of their core values and mottos is that we are creating a judgment-free, accepting, supporting zone. It's plastered all over the place. Right. Yet very frequently, we can step into those zones and not feel that welcomeness. Mm -hmm. And folks in large bodies have shared like, not only do they sometimes go to gyms and have looks of like, what could feel like mockery, disgust and all that, but they also get like what, what people think is benign and supportive is when they just feel like folks in large bodies, someone comes up to them, this absolute stranger is like, good for you for exercising. Um, and it's like that also not helpful. So it's, it's also just knowing like this judgment free zone, which is great is like, are you saying good for you for exercising to everybody in the room or just, or just a fat person? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's also noting that like, like we want to be encouraging to each other, of, of course, but just knowing like where at times we might um, kind of be going on our, our weight bias. That brings us back again to that unintentional bias. Yeah. With our good meaning consideration, we feel like we're being encouraging. How do we simply engage more effectively? on an empathetic level as human beings. You know, that's a whole nother can of worms to open up. Sure. <laughs> we may not approach that totally today, just simply being aware of how we're wording things, how we're interacting, how that perspective, sometimes just simply taking that moment to pause and just simply say the encouragement of saying hello. Right. Is often enough to create that environment of inviting, have a real and authentic conversation. How are you today? Versus feeling like we have to, out of our own interactions emotionally, kind of prop up and support some of that. Right. Absolutely. When, when you were just talking, like, how do we, it's like, hello, hello is a great thing. Hello is wonderful. Yeah. It's interesting to look how some of our own blind spots might exist in that zone. You know, what are we becoming uncomfortable with in our own interaction? Not to turn that into a selfish guard point we hide behind, but to bring it into that light of our awareness to mm -hmm. say, maybe I hadn't fully considered some of my own views and framing 
with my own emotionality, my own eating patterns, my own health patterns, and how right. these might be affecting both us and others throughout our interactions. Right. Um, because we all do it. We all do it in terms of we operated from a from a bias perspective. We operated from our own emotional base and benignly not realizing the harm that, that we just did. And we are human. And so I hoping that like we use those opportunities to say like, oh, wow, I kind of fumbled here. Okay. Um, I need to check that out in, in myself. I need to do some exploring so that I don't benignly do this or I'll just leave it at, 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 at that, you know. So to sum up our conversation today and perhaps bring <laughs> some levity of action to our proceedings, can you propose some effective strategies we might utilize to change some of the research, diagnoses, methods, or treatment specifically for marginalized communities who are addressing eating disorders? What can we do to create that change? Mm, one is first be willing to realize probably most, if not everything, you know about eating disorders is incorrect. And I'm like, okay, because of how it's been presented. So it's like, are we willing to say like, wow, I think I need to relearn what I think of about eating disorders because of stereotypes and, and not taking in marginalized communities into account here. So it's asking that, that first question of like, are you ready to unlearn almost everything you know about eating disorders? And if the answer is yes, then like there are some really fantastic resources out there. And in fact, a number of them are on my website. I, I'm always trying to find really good social justice folks uh, or folks doing social justice work with eating disorders. And so I'm always putting them on my website. And so there are numerous um, podcasts to books um, just to activist work being done. And this is an opportunity for us to say like, oh, I, I might it would be a good idea for me to take a look at my biases, um, particularly my, 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 my weight bias and, and, how, and how that comes into view of not only who I think has an eating disorder and, and who doesn't, but who, how I regard healthy and what is healthy. And so asking also the second question, like, are you willing to just take a step back going, wow, can I be so curious about health and, you know, and I think I know a lot, but am I willing to just kind of hold that and say, you're open to that, then I, I think we could really start to expand about what is healthy. And that will kind of go into what we think about food and bodies and how that will just be what our relationship with food in our bodies and what we know about food in our bodies and our community and how we hold food in our bodies is something that just evolves and if we're open to letting that evolve and change us that's a good thing so much of our change is driven by our awareness and our openness to educate ourselves to become more attuned so we'll be sure to share those resources in our show notes also looking back on our conversation today have we missed anything in the course of our discussion marcel I don't think so, but I, I really love the way you ending with like of us being curious and bringing in humility. I think those two things, the way you touched on them. I want to thank you for sharing 
your brilliant, curious light with us today. I know my journey throughout the preparation for this conversation has brought much into my awareness to be curious about and now go out and seek that understanding. So thank you for connecting with that opportunity today. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. (laughs) It truly has been. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Resisting diet culture isn't easy, and it's a task that requires intentional decisions every day. But pursuing self-love, happiness, and wellness is always worth it. We spend so much of our time trying to shrink our bodies, but what often ends up happening, instead, we shrink our lives. Shifting these deeply entrenched cultural divides has nevertheless proven to be a daunting task. Yet you deserve better. You always have. And it's not too late to start living your best life, guided by healthy emotional, mental, and physical well-being. The best way to resist diet culture is to be unapologetically you, loving yourself for the amazing human being you truly are, and embracing that light shining ever bright inside. If you found value and meaning in this episode, please share it with a friend or loved one. And as always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker.